President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy both say they're optimistic a debt ceiling deal can be reached, but there's no agreement yet. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, talks between pilot unions and the nation's airlines get heated just ahead of the busy summer travel season. Plus, reevaluating the idea of whether more police officers should be stationed inside schools. Also, a new survey of U.S. veterans finds concerns about extremism within the military may be exaggerated. The levels of support for some of these major extremist groups was on par or lower than what we saw for the general public. And this hour, TikTok sues the state of Montana over its ban of the app. In sports, Red Sox lose sunny in the 60s and 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he had a productive meeting yesterday with President Biden about increasing the country's debt limit. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on continued talks ahead of a June 1st deadline to avoid a historic default. McCarthy said the main sticking point in the negotiations is setting spending levels for federal programs. He disagrees with the president about including any tax increases in any deal to increase the nation's borrowing authority and insists there have to be cuts. I simply believe, like any household, like any business, like any state government, when you're this far out of whack, you have to spend less than you spent last year. Staff-level negotiations are resuming tonight, with the Speaker's team and White House aides discussing additional ideas for possible savings. The president released a statement also calling the talks productive. He added that both sides reiterated that default is not an option, and they need a bipartisan agreement. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. Magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll is seeking more financial damages after former President Donald Trump insulted her in a CNN town hall earlier this month. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more. The day after a jury awarded Carroll $5 million in damages for sexual assault and defamation, the former president called her a whack job and her account fake in front of a live television audience of millions. In new court papers, Carroll is asking a judge to add an additional damage claim to a second lawsuit she'd already filed. Carroll's lawyers are asking for very substantial punitive damages that would punish Trump and deter him and others from continuing to make defamatory statements after a jury verdict. Carroll says the judge can award the damages without a second jury trial. Trump's lawyers have appealed the verdict and are calling Carroll's new efforts, quote, an 11th hour attempt. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Meanwhile, a New York judge is expected to give Donald Trump instructions about his separate upcoming criminal trial. He's expected to tell Trump that he cannot share case information online. Trump is accused of falsifying business records in a hush money case. He has denied the allegations. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen has signed a bill that outlaws gender-affirming care for transgender people younger than 19. But Nebraska lawmakers also stuck in unrelated language that now outlaws most abortions in Nebraska after 12 weeks of pregnancy. Governor Pillen is delighted with the legislation. It's about protecting our kids and saving babies. Pure and simple, don't want to listen to all the other stuff that people are trying to make it out to be. It's two simple things, saving, protecting our kids and saving our babies. The abortion ban is effective immediately. The ACLU of Nebraska says it is considering a lawsuit on the abortion and gender-affirming care issues. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. State lawmakers are calling for an independent commission to investigate a proposal to discharge radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. The company in charge of decommissioning the Pilgrim nuclear power plant has proposed dumping the water as part of the plant's cleanup. State Senator Susan Moran is one of the lawmakers leading the charge for a commission. We must fully understand the impact, both short-term and long-term, that these contaminants will have on our community moving forward. A similar proposal was vetoed by former Governor Charlie Baker back in November. State lawmakers are considering a plan that would push back the deadline to file nomination papers for some Boston City Council seats. That deadline is today. The plan would give council hopefuls another month to submit their paperwork. The extra time is needed because the council is still working to redraw the city's voting district lines. Governor Healy has picked the state's first-ever Director of Rural Affairs. As Alden Bourne reports, State Senator Ann Gobi from Central Mass will serve in the role. Gobi currently represents 22 communities in Worcester and Hampshire counties. In her new role, she'll be advocating in Boston for the needs of rural towns, many of which are in the western part of the state. Natalie Blay is the state representative for the 1st Franklin District. I know Anne is somebody who is not afraid to ask the tough questions and demand answers. And she's established herself as a statewide leader in rural affairs as a legislator. And I'm really, really looking forward to working with her in this new role. Governor Healy has said that one of the key tasks for the new director will be to review all state grant opportunities to ensure barriers for rural and small towns are limited. Gobi starts in the new job in a few weeks. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Two Watertown men are each heading to prison for several years for leading a lottery ticket scam. Ali Jafar and his son Yusuf Jafar were sentenced yesterday. Prosecutors say over the course of a decade, they falsely claimed thousands of lottery prizes for other people and laundered more than $20 million. The State Lottery Commission is also punishing more than 40 lottery agents involved in the scheme. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a flexible and relevant degree that helps expand your network and further your career. bc.edu slash analytics. The Red Sox lost to the Angels 2-1 last night in Anaheim. The two teams play again tonight. Also tonight, it's win or season over for the Celtics. They'll play the Miami Heat in Game 4 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. Sunny today, it'll be in the lower 60s at the coast, lower 70s well inland, clear overnight with temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now it's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met last night for the first time since debt limit negotiations seemed to stall in recent days. They sounded an optimistic note, but acknowledged they're still far apart. Here's Biden before that meeting. We have to be in a position where we can sell it to our constituencies. We're pretty well divided in the House, almost down the middle. 
and it's not any different in the Senate. It just isn't clear if they can reach a deal before the country breaches the debt ceiling in as few as nine days. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is with us this morning to tell us more. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, Michelle. So let me start with this meeting last night between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Where are both sides now? As you mentioned, still pretty far apart, but they both tried to sound this optimistic tone. McCarthy said it marked the best discussion they've had on this yet, and he still thinks they can get this done in time to avoid a financial default. I think it was productive in the professionalism, the honesty with one another, and the desire to fight, try to find common ground. Biden, in a statement, also called it a productive meeting and said that their staffs will now continue to discuss a path forward. McCarthy expects they'll talk perhaps daily and their staffs will continue to meet to get this done. But we should note that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has repeated in a new letter to congressional leaders that it is highly likely that the U.S. will be unable to satisfy all of the government's obligations if Congress has not acted to raise or suspend the debt limit by early June and as early as June 1. So as briefly as you can, where are both sides stuck and where could they find agreement? McCarthy said nothing is agreed to and everything is being talked about. For example, he says he will not talk about any options to raise revenues, which is a key sticking point. Biden says he believes Republicans should consider a look at tax loopholes to make sure that the wealthy pay their fair share. And he said revenue matters as long as you are not taxing individuals with annual incomes of under $400,000. Uh, a year. And McCarthy has repeatedly said that spending cuts need to be central to this deal because he believes the government is spending too much. And he wants to see a deal where spending declines next year from this year. But he has also said that defense cuts are not on the table, so that leaves fewer places to install these slashes in spending. And he's talked about new working requirements for certain Americans who need federal assistance. And there could be potential agreement when it comes back to clawing back unspent funds like those related to pandemic relief bills. Do, do we have any sense about how this issue is playing among Americans? Obviously, that's a big group. But in terms of what approach should be taken here to resolve this? Yes, our new NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll out this morning found that a slim majority wants the debt ceiling raised without being tied to spending cuts. That is, they want to see leaders leave the talks about cuts for a separate conversation. But those results are driven by Democrats in the poll. Republicans overwhelmingly said they want cuts tied to the debt ceiling, while independents are split. Now, if they don't get anything done, there is a lot of blame to go around. People are split on who would take that blame. But when you look at independents, which is a key group for the 2024 elections, they would blame Biden by nine-point margin. That's 47 to 38. And that can give you more insight as to why the White House is so motivated to get this done. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you so much. Thank you. The U.S. Surgeon General is the latest to warn about the dangers of social media to kids. Vivek Morthy has put out an advisory on children's social media and mental health, and he joins us once again. Surgeon General, welcome back. Well, thanks so much. Good to be with you, Steve. I guess we should note this is a common story, a widely reported story, the idea that kids are looking constantly at videos and pictures online, and they're influenced often in very negative ways. But tell me, how powerful is the evidence of a connection between social media and depression or other mental health crises for kids? Well, I'm glad you asked, Steve, because the most common question that I get from parents around the country is about social media. And they ask me, is social media safe for my kids? 
And I also hear concerns from kids too, which is really important to know. Most kids tell me three things uh, about social media. It makes them feel worse about themselves, worse about their friendships, but they can't get off it. And I'm issuing an advisory today on social media and youth mental health because the bottom line is we do not have enough evidence to conclude that social media is in fact sufficiently safe for our kids. Instead, what we have is growing evidence that social media use is associated with harms. So consider that teens who use social media for more than three hours a day face double the risk of depression and anxiety symptoms, Hmm. which is particularly concerning given that the average amount of time that kids use social media is three and a half hours a day. So double the risk. There's an association between the more social media you use, the more you have that risk. That's what you're saying. That's right. And it's not even just a risk of depression and anxiety symptoms, but we find that nearly half of adolescents are saying that social media makes them feel worse about their body image. And, you know, as a father of two children, I want what every parent wants. I want my kids to grow up confident, to feel good about themselves, to be positioned to to succeed and thrive and build healthy relationships in the world. But too many kids are actually telling us that they're having an experience on social media that's subjecting them not only to feeling worse about themselves, but to to bullying, to harassment, uh, to content that is sexual and violent, uh, the kind of things which, as parents, we would not want our kids to be exposed to, but that has become their experience for many of them on social media. At the same time, your uh, advisory refers to evidence gaps. I've been reading it here, and you refer to a lack of Mm -hmm. access to data from social media companies. What do you need to know that you do not yet know? So many researchers around the country tell us that they've had a hard time getting the data that they need from social media companies to understand fully the extent of impact on kids, uh, particularly when it comes to mental health. What we need to know is not only the full extent of impact, but which kids are most impacted um, in terms of benefits and harms. We also need to understand more about the mechanisms through which social media uh, confers uh, potential harms. But what we really have to do here, uh, Steve, is ultimately we need to have the backs of parents because for too long we have put the entire burden of managing this new technology that's rapidly evolving, that's fundamentally changing how our kids think about themselves and interact with each other in the world. We've put the entire burden on the shoulders of parents and kids, and it's time for us to have their backs, which is why in the advisory, I not only lay out the challenges, what the data says, but I call for specific action from technology companies, from policymakers, because we need safety standards for social media, the way we have for cars, for car seats, for toys, for uh, medications, and for other products that kids use so that parents have more assurance uh, that these products are safe for their kids. We can't go through all the details of these proposed regulations. I've been reading them as well, though. It's very interesting. Nevertheless, they're not that specific. So tell me a principle. What is a principle of government regulation that makes sense, the thing the government should be doing here? So one of the key things government should do is to establish, implement, and enforce safety standards. We do this for cars. We do this for uh, many other products. We should be doing that here. And What does that mean, safety standards, meaning that they have to affirmatively show that, that Instagram or, or, or TikTok or whatever does not cause depression in kids? Is that what they have to do? Right. So what you want to do with safety standards is, in this case, with social media, you want to ensure that these standards call for measures that protect kids from exposure to harmful content, that protect them from harassment online, particularly from strangers. Keep in mind, 6 in 10 adolescent girls 
say that they've been approached by strangers on in social media in ways that make them feel uncomfortable. You also want these measures to protect against excessive use. You know, adolescents are at a very sensitive uh, stage of brain development where they're more prone uh, to social cues, social pressures, and that exists in abundance on social media. But the platforms are designed to maximize time mm-hmm. that our kids spend on them. What I really care about as a doctor is I care about the health and the well-being of our kids. And these, uh, what we need to are standards that actually, and, and measures, that reduce the likelihood kids will be exposed to features that will manipulate them to spend more time uh, on these platforms at the expense of their health. Uh, Surgeon General, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Good to talk to you as well, Steve. Dr. Vivek Murthy is the United States Surgeon General. Climate change causes billions of dollars in damage every year in the United States. Now, federal scientists have a plan to help insurance companies that are on the hook for that damage. NPR's Rebecca Hersher has this report. Last year, wildfires, floods, hurricanes, and other climate-driven disasters caused at least $175 billion of damage in the U.S. Roy Wright leads the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, a think tank. More and more Americans are frankly, having Mother Nature barge through their front door. That change in climate comes at a price. Which is why if a hurricane destroys your house, you rely on your home insurance to help pay to rebuild. But as climate risks grow, insurance companies are raising their rates or canceling policies altogether, which leaves residents in a tricky and painful situation. If you can't get affordable home insurance, you may have to give up your home. Now, federal scientists are hoping they can help. Sarah Kapnick is the lead scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And she says she's been hearing from the insurance industry a lot. In the last few months, they've really come to us saying, we need better information of understanding climate change and its effects on extremes. Extremes like rainstorms and heat waves that would be virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. NOAA has powerful information about how likely those disasters are, now and in the future. NOAA and the National Science Foundation, which funds research at universities, are starting a new research center that will make that data more useful to the insurance industry. The goal, Kapnick says, is to help property insurance companies understand the future. She says a lack of solid climate data is one reason that people who live in high-risk areas are grappling with unaffordable insurance or worse. In places where you don't have a lot of data, you either don't know how to price the premium or people stop offering insurance at all. The trade group, the American Property Casualty Insurance Association, says the new research center will be extremely beneficial. Of course, better data can only go so far. The dangers posed by climate change to homes and to the companies that insure those homes will keep growing unless greenhouse gas emissions rapidly fall. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, there's been a national increase in schools reporting violent behavior by students. That's fueling more discussions about whether police should be stationed inside schools. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering. From scratch meals that combine New England ingredients with Caribbean and Southern flavors. FreshFoodGeneration.com. 
and Huntington Theater just announced don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. Florida law now bans public colleges from offering general ed classes that, quote, distort significant events or teach identity politics. It was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's getting out of that game. Um, If you want to do things like gender ideology, go to Berkeley. Is it constitutional for a government to tell colleges what they can and can't teach? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This morning's episode of The Common will get you ready for this weekend's huge Boston Calling concert. More than half of this year's lineup includes performers who are female and non-binary. But when it comes to racial diversity, there's still a lot of work to do. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny and breezy today in the 60s, 70s as you go towards Central Mass. Tonight, mostly clear and a low in the 40s. Tomorrow, sunny again and a high in the low 70s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from A24 with You Hurt My Feelings from Nicole Holof Center. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies star in a marriage comedy about the white lies people tell to those they love the most. Opens only in theaters May 26th. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Over the past school year, teachers and principals say they've been dealing with disruptions, violence, and threats. They report fights, kids smuggling weapons into classrooms, and trouble maintaining discipline. Many of these schools have been trying not to kick students out. So now some talk of bringing police back in. NPR's Martin Costi reports. This is Ingram High School on the north end of Seattle. And just inside the entrance, there's a poster, a memorial. It says, Rest Easy, Eb a reference to a 17-year-old boy named Ebenezer shot to death in the school hallway. That was in November. The flowers taped to the poster are now wilted. But the memories are still vivid. I fear every day. You know, I really fear. Outside the school, Maki Galitelli recalls rushing here with other anxious parents. Her freshman daughter had heard the gunshots but was okay. And since then, many of the parents have been pressing the school district to explain what happened and to review its policies for discipline and safety since the pandemic. I believe that there is a lot of health issues and emotional issues in the youth, in adults, in everything. We're seeing it. But I also believe that there is permissiveness in schools. Similar complaints have been heard around the country this school year. From Brevard County, Florida, where Sheriff Wayne Ivey held a press conference outside his jail, denouncing students who'd attacked local school staff. Quite frankly, they're not worried about getting in trouble. They know nothing's going to happen to them. They know they're not going to be given after-school detention. They're not going to be suspended. They're not going to be expelled. 
to Portland, Oregon, where a seventh grader told the school board about how another student had held a blade to her throat and then was allowed back to the same school building. I am not asking, I am not begging, I am demanding that you take charge and provide for student safety. Do something, don't wait for someone to get killed. At Ingram High in Seattle, parents focused on reports that the alleged shooter had been caught one month earlier with a hunting knife and a realistic-looking BB gun. NPR member station KUOW uncovered internal school communications about the incident. At least one staffer asked if the boy shouldn't be expelled, but he just got suspended for two and a half days. Seattle schools would not do an interview about this case, but the district has been trying to de-emphasize certain punishments in recent years. It's part of a national movement. Research shows that suspensions and expulsions can have a negative effect on students. Rachel Pereira studies K-12 education policy at the Brookings Institution. Since the Obama administration, she says schools have recognized that exclusionary punishments are used more often against students of color, something critics call the school-to-prison pipeline. Pereira says the trend away from this is a good thing, but it may now be running into some headwinds. I do worry about that because we're seeing lots of reports, both in the media and in surveys of educators, that they are facing more acute behavioral challenges. And it's not that principals want to start expelling more kids again. I don't disagree with the movement. We were disproportionately suspending students, student of color, for decades. Scott Seaman runs the Association of Washington School Principals. He says what he's been hearing around his state and the country is that after the pandemic, districts have failed to provide enough alternatives, such as more counseling and programs known as restorative justice. Problem now is now you've got a whole bunch of students bottled up in the system with no additional resources to deal with the issue. And this worry about troubled kids being bottled up leads to another question. When should the schools turn to the police? During the George Floyd protests of 2020, many big city school districts made a point of ending their police in the schools programs. Portland, Oregon was one of those. We have a very, a school that doesn't always support law enforcement. Henry Callahan is a junior at Cleveland High School. A student was shot in December, and Callahan later did a story for the student paper about the possibility of bringing police back. We were expecting a lot of people to be like, yeah, no, absolutely not. Instead, he found that opinions had softened. We saw, honestly, a lot more of the students voicing like, yeah, you know what, it might be necessary, or we think it is time, you know. Some parents petitioned the school district to rebuild its ties with the police, and the board is now planning to bring officers closer to schools. But not necessarily back into schools. Jackie Dixon is the vice president of the Portland Association of Teachers. She says most of her colleagues prefer to keep the cops on the outside. There is research out there that suggests having a police presence in schools can be harmful to students and cause them to feel like they don't want to be in that environment. But other districts have brought police back inside, often after violence. In Denver, when a student shot two administrators in March, the mayor said removing officers from schools had been, quote, a mistake. Mo Kennedy is the executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, known as SROs. The ranks of SROs are growing once again. He says that often happens after a high-profile school shooting. But this year, it may also have to do with the big increase in the number of first-time gun buyers during the pandemic and police warnings about more unsecured guns being left where kids can get to them. Kennedy says this is where a school needs a trained police officer. 
We don't need school administrators having to be tasked with searching someone for a gun. That's not fair to them. Back in Seattle, the district is not ready to station officers inside schools. And that's all right with Ingram parent Maki Galatelli. She doesn't think a school-based cop could have prevented the fatal shooting here. And she's also a believer in finding ways to avoid suspending or expelling kids. But once there's a weapon, she draws the line. That child needs to be treated with respect, but find a way, somehow remove that child from the rest of the students because that child represents a threat. District administrators have been meeting with her and other parents privately to try to reassure them about safety. And just a few weeks ago, when an online video showed a student flashing a gun in the school's parking lot, they quickly called the police to confiscate the weapon. Martin Costi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Welcome to Tuesday. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, pilots and major airlines have been in contract negotiations since 2019 because of the pandemic. The talks are growing tense over compensation and quality of life issues. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBOR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBOR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash MassAudubon. Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are expressing optimism that a deal to raise the debt ceiling will be reached soon. The two met again yesterday at the White House as a June deadline for the federal government to avoid a default gets closer. Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina is a lawmaker negotiating on behalf of the speaker. No one's going to agree to anything until we have a finalized deal. We got very good direction from the speaker and from the president. The president says he and McCarthy agreed default is not really an option. Nebraska's governor has signed into law restrictions on abortion and health care for transgender youth. Fred Knapp with Nebraska Public Media reports. Surrounded by a room full of supporters, Governor Jim Pillen, a Republican, praised the legislation passed by the Republican-dominated state legislature. It's about protecting our kids and saving babies. Pure and simple, don't want to listen to all the other stuff that people are trying to make it out to be. It's two simple things. Critics say after rejecting a ban on most abortions after six weeks, lawmakers shoehorned a 12-week ban into an unrelated bill restricting gender-affirming care for transgender youth. ACLU Nebraska says it's considering a lawsuit. For NPR News, I'm Fred Knapp in Lincoln, Nebraska.
This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she wants to work with the city of Quincy to rebuild the bridge to Long Island. The old bridge was closed in 2014 and demolished over safety concerns. Quincy's mayor has blocked efforts to rebuild the bridge. Wu wants to open a regional campus on the island to help people experiencing homelessness and dealing with substance use disorders. She told WBUR's Radio Boston that the city nearly has all the permits it needs to go ahead with the project, but she wants wants to work with neighbors. It will be better and and we'll have a more effective program if we see this as a regional recovery campus and not just one for Boston because this issue in and of itself is a statewide national issue. Quincy's mayor says he remains opposed to a new bridge but not the idea of the recovery campus. The Healy administration is asking for $250 million from the federal government for clean energy. The state says the grant money would help create more offshore wind power by improving the electric grid in southeastern Massachusetts. Healy's office says the upgrades would help bring in enough energy to power around one million homes. The city of Watertown must pay its first female police detective more than $5.5 million. A judge ruled Kathleen Donahue faced a sexist work environment in her more than two decades with the Watertown Police Department. That's more than the $4 million a jury awarded her last year. The Boston Globe reports the judge in the case awarded her additional money for legal fees and interest after the city requested a new trial. The MGM Springfield Casino will pay $45,000 in fines because of underage gamblers. State regulators say more than 20 underage people entered the casino's gaming area last year. MGM officials say they're taking steps to keep underage people off the casino floor, including putting more security personnel in key areas. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It's do or die tonight for the Celtics. They have to beat the Heat in Miami or they'll be swept in the Eastern Conference Finals. Tip-off is 8.30. The Red Sox fell to the Angels 2-1 to last night in California. The teams will meet again tonight. Clear skies and highs in the 60s near the coast today. It'll be warmer as you go inland in the low 70s. Tonight's skies stay clear and it falls to lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow highs reach the low 70s and it'll be sunny. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
TikTok is fighting back against Montana's planned ban on the popular social media app. The operators of the site filed a lawsuit. They object to Montana's new law, which bans a site where you can find people dancing, cats, point-of-view videos, and quite often somebody's take on the news. A group of five content creators also filed suit against the state. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen is with us now to talk about how the future of TikTok could be tied to how this case shakes out. Bobby, hello. Thanks for joining us. Hello. So before we get to the lawsuit, if you could just walk us back a minute and remind us about why Montana is trying to ban TikTok. Yeah, the short answer is China. TikTok is owned by Beijing-based internet company ByteDance, and Montana officials worry that the Chinese government could use TikTok to spy on Americans or try to use the app to influence the views of Americans. Washington, of course, is also concerned about this. Now, dozens of states have banned TikTok on government devices, but making it illegal to download an app within a state's borders is really something the U.S. has never seen before. And skeptics of the law say it amounts to theater, right? That it's really a way to score political points for being seen as being tough on China. But, you know, Montana officials say they are genuinely concerned about the privacy and safety of its state's TikTok users. Now, the law doesn't fully kick in until January 2024. Unless, of course, it's struck down, which is what TikTok is hoping for with the lawsuit. So tell us a bit more about TikTok's arguments. Yeah, lawyers for TikTok are leading really heavily here on the First Amendment, which is a very strong legal shield in the courts. Anytime the government tries to restrict free speech, it's basically presumed it's not allowed unless some very specific requirements are met, like protecting national security. And that's something Montana is citing. But TikTok's legal team says the law points to no solid evidence that TikTok is a national security threat, saying they are relying on, quote, unfounded speculation. Another argument TikTok makes is that even if there was a national security concern, that would be up to the federal government and not an individual state to address. And all the legal experts I've talked to say TikTok has a very strong case, but ultimately it will be up to a federal judge to decide. There seems to be a lot riding on this one lawsuit. Is that so? And why is that? Yeah, it really is. And and that's because TikTok is in limbo right now. The White House is weighing what to do about TikTok. Top Biden officials are keeping an eye on how this shakes out in the courts because federal officials themselves have threatened to ban TikTok nationwide, but haven't in part because of concerns that it would be thrown out in court. Also, if the Montana law is upheld by a judge, it could create something of a snowball effect, right? I mean, more states could pass copycat laws banning TikTok, which just imagine would be a real nightmare, right? Imagine crossing a state line and, and pulling up your TikTok app and not being able to access it. That, that would just be wild. Let's just say for the sake of argument, this law does take effect. How would it be enforced? Yeah, cybersecurity experts are really skeptical that it's going to be easy to enforce. Right now, the law intends to punish companies like Apple and Google for making TikTok available, not the people using TikTok. Still, it's not even clear that Apple and Google can completely prevent an app from being downloaded in a single state. There are some blunt force ways to block an app in a state, but there would be so many ways around it, so many loopholes. You know, not to mention the unintended consequences like accidentally banning the app in neighboring states, which would create a whole new set of legal problems. Really, a nationwide ban would be much easier to implement, but I think we all can recall that former President Trump tried to do that, and it was struck down in court. That's NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Bobby, thank you. Thank you. Thousands of pilots have been joining protests outside the nation's airports. 
United, American, and Southwest Airlines are all negotiating new contracts with the people who fly their planes. NPR's Andrea Shu asked what the pilots want. First thing to know, pilots haven't seen raises in several years. That's because the contract talks going on now were delayed by the pandemic. But money isn't even the biggest sticking point. What is? Quality of life and work-life balance. Captain Alex Cole was among hundreds of off-duty United pilots who picketed at Washington Dulles Airport the other week. His job flying a 737 has him away from home about 15 days a month. You're missing birthdays and you're missing those other uh, events. These are special moments that you don't get back. Now, one could argue this is the life you sign up for when you become an airline pilot. These are good paying jobs. But Captain Dennis Tager, who's flown with American for more than 30 years, says a pilot shortage has made things worse. Here he was early this month outside Chicago O'Hare. I don't know what's going to happen this summer. When the pandemic hit, thousands of pilots were offered early retirement. But travel rebounded way faster than the airlines expected. To meet demand, Tager says, American has been giving pilots tighter schedules with less buffer between flights and more time away from home. In the past, he says, there were more one- and two-day trips. Now four- and five-day trips are the norm, and that's piling on a lot of problems. Not only does that destroy our family life, But when a trip falls apart on day one, that leaves all that extra flying out there to be picked up somehow. What he means is, say there's a storm delay and a crew times out. Airlines do have some reserve pilots who can step in. But what's happening a lot is pilots are getting reassigned. You may be finishing a three-day trip and suddenly you're told, nope, you can't go home. You have to go to Denver instead. Pilots want limits on this kind of thing and incentives for those who want to jump in at the last minute. Now, the management side acknowledges that pilots have been through a lot lately, as travel has come roaring back. What's called irregular operations are going to happen. I think it's the extent that it's happened. Jerry Glass has represented airlines in pilot negotiations over decades, although he's not involved in this round. He is hopeful that things are getting back to normal now that airlines are staffing up. But he's telling companies, you need to reassess how you schedule workers or you will have problems finding talent. The younger generation, he says, is not like their elders. You've probably heard the expression, time is the new money. Their quality of life is very important to them much more so than my generation where, you know, if you have to work, you work. So you might be wondering, what does all this mean for us, the flying public? Well, a few weeks ago, Captain Tager had a warning. The pilots at American Airlines are ready to strike. But don't worry, they're now close to a deal. And besides, there are many, many things that have to happen before pilots can actually strike. For one thing, the White House would get involved. So your summer travel is probably fine. But Helene Becker, airline analyst with TD Cowan, projects flying is going to get more expensive. Yes, it is. Not only because pilot pay is going up, but flight attendant pay is going up as well. And wages are going up a lot. In March, Delta pilots negotiated a 34% raise by 2026. United and American have said they'll match that. In the end, it comes down to supply and demand. Airline employees, like so many other workers in this post-pandemic economy, still have the upper hand. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, a new survey is providing insight into possible extremism among members of the military. It finds that support for extremist groups is generally lower among veterans than in the general population. We'll have a high in the 60s and 70s today, depending on how close you are to the coast. It'll also be breezy and sunny. Tonight, upper 40s, then low 70s tomorrow and sunny again. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And Porter Square Books, popping up at the Seaport Summer Market the first three weekends in June from 11 to 7. You can kickstart summer reading with Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. Boston-based Ironwood Pharmaceuticals is buying a Swiss company in a $1 billion deal. The deal for Vective Bio will expand Ironwood's drug portfolio, which focuses on gastrointestinal diseases. The deal should close later this year. Andover-based energy company Enel North America is moving forward with plans to build a new manufacturing facility in Oklahoma. It'll build solar cells and panels. The plant is expected to have more than 1,000 workers and cost about a billion dollars. The new observation deck atop the Prudential Center in Boston will open next month. The area known as View Boston has set a June 15th opening day. It includes a cocktail lounge, a theater, and viewing platforms. It's 744. Many people with long COVID have had to take a leave from their jobs. Now they rely on long-term disability checks to survive, and getting approved has become increasingly difficult. It's very frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for patients, for doctors. And insurance companies will say, we're not paying until we figure this out. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skew. And I'm Michelle Martin. How many people with extremist views have ties to the military? The National Guard may have missed the signs that a suspected leaker of highly classified intelligence information, Jack Teixeira, was stockpiling guns and posting on social media about mass killings. And the Pentagon last week acknowledged it has not implemented most of a plan to counter extremism in the ranks. Despite those kinds of headlines, there's better news about veterans, NPR's Quill Lawrence tells us, about a new nationwide survey that suggests that men and women who have left military service generally do not embrace extremism on the left or the right. Stories about veterans and extremism regularly make the news, like the recent guilty plea by a U.S. Marine for breaking into the Capitol on January 6th. Initial reports suggested huge numbers of veterans in that mob. The real number turned out much lower, says Todd Helmus with the RAND Corporation. 
Those initial reports spurred a lot of fear and concern about the risk of veterans, but no one's actually looked at the numbers. Helmus and his colleagues did and were encouraged by what they found in a survey of about 1,000 veterans nationwide, says fellow researcher Ryan Brown. Some examples of that, the general public, 7% support for white supremacists and less than 1% support for white supremacists among veterans. 9% of the general public has a positive view of the far-right Proud Boys, compared to just 4% of veterans. The vast majority of deadly political violence in America comes from the far-right, but Rand also surveyed views about Antifa. About 10% of the general public say they support the far-left movement. Only 5.5% of veterans said they support Antifa. Violent extremist groups do target veterans for their skill set, Brown says. Vets, on average, seem to be very resilient to those efforts. And so I think that some of the characteristics that draw you to serve your country will help protect against forces that would undermine your country. Brown and Helmus are not veterans. They were pleasantly surprised by the findings. U.S. Marine vet Joe Plensler was not surprised. If veterans are overrepresented in the January 6th, mob, it's important to remember that they're also overrepresented in the halls of Congress. They're overrepresented in state legislatures, they're overrepresented in in town councils. So, you know, I I think when people put their hand in the air and swear to support and defend the Constitution, that oath doesn't end when we leave the Department of Defense. Lensler is on the board of a group called We the Veterans. They recruit vets to fill the nationwide shortage of election poll workers. Ellen Gustafson co-founded that group. We have a story from a Vietnam veteran in New Jersey Um, who said he had two experiences that were kind of difficult as a poll worker um, at his polling location. One where a a guy walked in with a Biden hat and another where a guy walked in with a um, red Make America Great Again hat. He told both of them, um, you know, politely to take them off, and they did without incident. She says when that Vietnam vet asked the men to take off their political hats, he was wearing a 101st Airborne hat, which is not political. And that's the point. There's a lot of people in America who who are looking at our military and veteran community as, you know, woke. And then in another media silo, you you could easily take away that our military is full of white supremacists. And as a military spouse who lives in this community, I know that not to be true because, as we believe, veterans, you know, in many ways should know better and had the experience as Americans working across a lot of different backgrounds to, to just get the job done for our country. The RAND researchers stress their report is just a start, just a survey, but they're optimistic with what they've learned so far. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, former Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams talks about her latest novel about a Supreme Court clerk investigating a possible cover-up. And at 810, people in Sudan continue to flee the ongoing violence between rival armies there. We have an update on the growing refugee crisis. It's 749. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. 
DirectTire.com and BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy still haven't reached an agreement to avoid a federal default, despite what they call productive discussions. Arizona, California, and Nevada have reached an agreement to reduce water usage to help protect the drought-stricken Colorado River. And Russia is responding to attacks inside its borders by anti-Kremlin fighters who are reportedly allied with Ukraine. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. We'll have temperatures in the 60s closer to the coast today, low 70s farther inland. It'll also be sunny. Tonight, it may dip into the 40s, tomorrow in the 70s under clear skies. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Former Georgia State Representative Stacey Abrams has one of those resumes that makes you feel bad about yourself. World-class education, a distinguished career in the Georgia legislature, a national leader on voting rights, entrepreneur, professor, and she's a prolific author of both fiction and political strategy. Her most recent book, Her 15th, is another novel, and it's out today. It's her second thriller that features Supreme Court clerk, amateur sleuth, and all-around savior of democracy, Avery Keene. And Stacey Abrams is with us now to tell us more about it. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a delight. I think people may remember your first thriller, which features Avery Keene. It's a you know a rogue president involved in international intrigue, a Supreme Court justice who falls into a persistent vegetative state. It's my recollection that the first draft of this book, everybody passed on it because the president seemed too absurd and nobody cares about the Supreme Court. I take it it was different this time around. <laughs> yes. So I, I wrote it actually in 2010, So there was turmoil, but nothing quite as egregious as I portrayed in While Justice Sleeps. And so Rug Justice picks up four months later and really looks at the consequences of confronting a president who's made some egregious mistakes, but where the public is divided about what that means. We follow her through the political fallout, but she is contacted by someone who recognizes that one part of our court system is imperiled. And so... Avery has to figure out how broken our systems are by understanding just how fragile our infrastructure is in this nation. One of the reasons I was curious about this is that your last book dealt with things that we subsequently had to worry about, like big pharma, bioengineering. This one deals with surveillance and things like that. How do you think of these things? The reason I ask is that, you know, some people who who write about like science fiction, right? What they'll do is they'll extrapolate forward. They'll think, well, what would it be like if we had no water or something like that? So like, how do you come up with these things? I really like to understand where we are and where we go next. And as much as I love science fiction, I'm trying to think 10, 20, 30 years in the future, not 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years in the future. But the conversations about our infrastructure matter to me. I actually at one point had an infrastructure consulting firm. And so I'd spent some time thinking about the physical infrastructure of the country. Uh, My younger sister is a federal judge and we were having lunch uh, after she'd come back from a conference. And I was actually 
flipping through her conference program, and that gave me part of the idea for this book. But really, my ideas come from thinking about what we see in the world around us and then what could go slightly wrong, or more importantly, what questions aren't we asking about what's happening to us? So could you give us a heads up? What's keeping you up at night now? (laughs) Just so you know, we can get ready. I I will say I begin a conversation about cybersecurity in this book, and it continues to be an issue that I want to explore a bit more. I think about AI, and yes, we have the sort of existential crisis conversation about AI, but I think there are more pedestrian issues for us to concern ourselves with. Assuming you can't stop it, let's think about what else could be done with it beyond not just the future taking our jobs, but what does it mean for the nature of what work is? You know, to that end, the subjects you deal with in these books are serious, but there is kind of a fun tone to it. They're not so dire that you can't kind of enjoy it as a ride. And I was just wondering how you arrive at that kind of tone. It's how I exist. My work is hard. The conversations we have to have from Avery's grappling with her mother's, her addiction to drugs and her mental illness and what that means. There are dark and hard things we face. And my life, the way I was raised, the way I think about the world, it's not just how do we grapple in the dark and how do we push through the dark, it's how do we bring the light. Your Washington-based books are animated by a concern about the fragility of, and I might even say corruption of, our democratic systems. So I do have to ask you about what you make of the recent reporting by ProPublica and other outlets regarding the financial ties between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and this Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. We should all be held to the highest ethical standard, particularly those who have been both privileged with and burdened with the responsibility for guarding our legal system. And irrespective of who it is, what we should all be demanding as Americans is the highest responsibility. My hope is that what is being revealed in these conversations also exposes a weakness in our structure. And when there are concerns about the ethics of those who we have to trust to mete out justice, then it is the obligation of those in power to satisfy those concerns. And to that end, though, the whole question of um, the fitness for office of people in these high positions, there are Democrats who do have concern about President Biden who are worried about whether he is up to the job, or at least if he's up to another four years. And I want to know if you share those concerns. I believe in the leadership of President Biden, and I look forward to four more years. Okay. So what's next for you? You've just accepted an endowed chair at Howard University. Congratulations on that. What's next for you? I have a third Avery Keene novel in the offing that I need to get to sometime this summer. But I am actually focused on both my entrepreneurial ventures. I have done a lot of work with small businesses. I am working with Rewiring America, making certain that consumers have access to the resources that are coming through the Inflation Reduction Act for electrifying our homes and helping address climate action. And I'm excited about the work I'm going to be doing at Howard University. Are you having any fun? I am. I'm having a great time. I get to wake up every morning and do things I believe in and things I love. And I am pleased by my ability 
to navigate all of the facets of who I am. And I think it can be a bit disconcerting to some, (laughs) but I'm never defined by one moment or one idea because we have a lot of work to do. And I'm grateful to have a chance to try to tackle it from a number of different perspectives. Or or maybe just making the rest of us feel inadequate. (laughs) I'm trying to entertain. (laughs) Stacey Abrams' latest book, it's a novel, is Rogue Justice, and it is out today. Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us. Michelle, thank you so much. It's been a delight. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. WBUR supporters include Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual info session May 25th, buacademy.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. TikTok is suing Montana over the state's ban of the Chinese video sharing app because of national security concerns. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say they've had productive discussions but haven't reached an agreement yet to avoid a looming federal default. Also, remembering Boston Marathon icon Rick Hoyt, a pioneer of wheelchair racing who's died at age 61. And when we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. And this hour... Dozens of cyclists biking together, younger folks, older folks, people in spandex, people dressed for work, the whole gambit of folks getting around this morning. Our transportation reporter goes for a ride during Bay State Bike Month. Sunny in the 60s and 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say they're optimistic an agreement will be reached to raise the debt ceiling. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden and McCarthy met again yesterday at the White House. President Biden said at the start of the meeting that it's time for both sides to find compromise. We have to be in a position where we can sell it to our constituencies. We're pretty well divided in the House, almost down the middle, and it's not any different in the Senate. So we got to get something that can sell to both sides. After the meeting ended a little more than an hour later, McCarthy called it the best they've had on the issue. I believe we can still get there. I, be- I believe we can get it done. It's still early to tell if this indicates a breakthrough, but the leaders told staff to continue talking to find common ground, and McCarthy says he thinks he and Biden will talk every day now. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Plans are underway to break ground on a new school in Uvalde, Texas this summer. Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips reports the new school will replace Robb Elementary, where 19 children and two teachers were killed one year ago. Uvalde's new school will be in a new location. Lalo Diaz is co-chair of the committee helping architects design the school. He says the community needs a fresh start and a place that hasn't seen violence. In Hispanic culture and in most cases, probably any culture, 
Uh, most of the families will say that, um, how can we build something there when the devil's there? The new school is designed around an interior courtyard so that students will have a protected outdoor space. At the center, a steel tree with 21 branches will honor the memory of Rob's victims. Colorful elements that represent Uvalde, like honeybees and monarch butterflies, are also included in the design. I'm Camille Phillips in San Antonio. Federal authorities have arrested the driver of a box truck who crashed into the barriers near the White House last night. The Secret Service says it appears the driver did it intentionally. Officials say he is facing several charges. Fighting continues in the Russian region of Belgorod near the border with Ukraine. Russia is blaming Ukrainian saboteurs, but two Russian paramilitary groups have claimed responsibility. They say they're attempting to overthrow the Russian regime in Moscow. Ukraine's former infrastructure minister, Volodymyr Omelyan, says that after Russia invaded last year, he predicted Russia would see attacks on its own territory. There is no doubt about that. And it's not only territory uh, of Ukraine which will suffer. It will be also territory of Russia. But uh, in our attention as uh, Ukrainian armed forces, we are not going to cross the border. We just want to restore our territory in the borders of 1991 as it used to be. He spoke to the BBC. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, stock futures are lower. This is NPR. The video sharing app TikTok is suing Montana. TikTok alleges a new Montana law that bans everybody in the state from using the app is incorrect. The law takes effect next January. TikTok says the ban violates free speech and that it's acting to protect people who use the app for their businesses. Montana officials say the Chinese government could use it to access Americans' data. The Denver Nuggets will be making their first-ever NBA Finals appearance after sweeping the Los Angeles Lakers four games to none in the Western Conference Finals. NPR's Tristan Plunkett has more on the 113-111 win for the Nuggets in Game 4 last night. Led by big man Nikola Jokic, the Nuggets were able to tame an offensive explosion by Lakers star LeBron James to secure their spot in the Finals. Jokic posted a triple-double for the eighth time this postseason when a player hits double digits in three categories. In doing so, he broke a nearly 60-year record held by NBA great Wilt Chamberlain. James opened the game with 21 points for the Lakers in the first quarter. He finished the game with a total of 40, but Jokic says the Nuggets were able to make some adjustments for the second half. He was just dominating the game, um, but we found a way that make him take tough shots. The Nuggets await the winner of the Miami Heat-Boston Celtics series to see who they'll face in the finals. Tristan Plunkett, NPR News. A volcano not far from Mexico City is spewing smoke and ash. The Mexican government has boosted its warning level on the volcano's activity. No evacuations have yet been ordered. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The number of hate crimes reported in Massachusetts is up more than 30 percent. A new report from the Anti-Defamation League compares data from 2021 and 2022. It finds Massachusetts communities saw some of the highest rates of white supremacist propaganda in the nation. There were also significant jumps in anti-Semitic and homophobic incidents. 
A group of state legislators and environmental leaders are relaunching an effort this morning to make 100 percent of the electricity used in the state clean energy. They want to hit that goal by the year 2035. They also want to make all the state's transportation run with clean energy by 2045. State Representative Marjorie Decker of Cambridge is one of two legislators who filed the bill for those goals. There's more work to do to make sure that the infrastructure for green, um, clean energy continues to be available, um, both in terms of how we source the energy and in the workforce that is able to, um, to power our lives. Eleven other states currently have legislation on the books committing to 100 percent clean energy. Boston City Councilors have tentatively agreed on a new redistricting map. The Boston Herald reports the new map was redrawn to balance the city's population between each of its nine voting districts. The old map was tossed out by a federal judge. The council must formally approve the changes by next week. Failing to do so would delay the September 12th primary election. Fruit farms in western Massachusetts are still assessing the damage from last week's late-season frost. Peter Mitchell is with the Headwater Cider in Hawley. He says the freezing temperatures came when the apples were just developing and were most susceptible to the cold. That 27 degrees lasted about six hours that night. It was just constantly cold. And the duration of the cold caused even more damage. I estimate we lost about half the crop. This month's freeze came after a record drop in temperatures in early February that nearly wiped out the state's peach crop. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. The Red Sox lost to the Angels last night in Anaheim. The final was 2-1. to one. The same two teams play again tonight. Also tonight, it's Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Heat. Boston trails Miami three games to none, which means the Celtics have to win to avoid elimination. Sunny today. It'll be in the lower 60s at the coast, lower 70s well inland. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include HBO. Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film, Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on Max. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skew. And I'm Michelle Martin. What happens if the government runs out of money to pay its bills? President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy keep saying not to worry about that. They met yesterday to negotiate over raising the federal debt limit. Congress needs to do that in order to meet its legal obligations. Biden spoke before yesterday's meeting. We still have some disagreements, but I think we may be able to get where we have to go. We both know we have a significant responsibility. McCarthy said after the meeting, I believe we can get it done, but hardly more than a week remains before June 1st. The Treasury Department says that's the earliest date at which the U.S. may have less money than it needs. NPR Scott Horsley has been asking what that might look like. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. So let me start with Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. She was on Morning Edition not long ago. She suggested the U.S. can pay its existing debts. Let's listen to what she said. We can prioritize. The president can prioritize spending. We're not going to run out of money to pay the interest on the debt because we get 11 times the interest on the debt and tax revenues year over year. So let me briefly fact check that. Is she right? 
if all you're concerned about is making interest payments on the government's debt, she is right. Uh, the government almost certainly will keep making those payments. And interest isn't due until the middle of June anyway. Uh, but the government has tens of billions of dollars in other bills that it's supposed to pay before that. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it's very likely the government will not have enough money to cover all those bills unless Congress raises the debt limit soon. Uh, keep in mind, tax revenue covers only about 75 cents of every dollar the government spends. Uh, the rest has to be borrowed. And if the government can't borrow more money, some bills are going to go unpaid. Which is like the way a lot of families live, right? I mean, if you don't have enough money to pay all your bills, you prioritize some over the others. So how is the government going to decide who gets paid and who doesn't? Yeah, for the government, it's a very tough call. Who do you stiff? Uh, retirees on Social Security, uh, members of the military, doctors who look after Medicare patients, uh, taxpayers who are waiting for their refunds. Uh, bondholders are paid through a separate computer system, so they can easily be given priority. But Yellen told a Senate committee this spring, trying to pay some of the government's bills and not others is both risky and untested. The government, on average, makes millions of payments each day and our systems are built to pay all of our bills on time and not to pick and choose which bills to pay. That said, the Treasury Department might be forced into that position in just about nine days. Uh, Yellen told NBC over the weekend, if the debt ceiling's not raised, there will be hard choices to make about which bills go unpaid. Now, the government has not said a lot about how it would go about that. It would be messy. There could be legal challenges. One option would be to keep paying bills in order as tax money becomes available. So perhaps someone who's expecting a Social Security payment on June 2nd instead gets paid on June 3rd or June 5th. The longer the impasse drags on, the more those unpaid bills pile up and the later the payments might get. How much lasting damage would that do? Well, when an individual is late paying bills, uh, his credit rating takes a hit, and that makes it more expensive to borrow money in the future. Uh, the same thing could happen to the federal government. Uh, now, if bondholders keep getting paid, this might not count as a technical default. But Yellen has said failure to pay any of the government's bills would be a default by another name. And, you know, it would likely rattle the financial markets. Bondholders might reasonably wonder, how long are they going to keep getting paid uh, while grandmothers and service members have their checks held up? That's not a very good look politically. Mm, that certainly isn't. That is NPR Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you so much. You're welcome. The United Nations Refugee Agency says fighting between rival armies in Sudan has displaced nearly one million people. In just over a month, up to 90,000 of them have traveled from Sudan to neighboring Chad. Rauf Mazou is in Chad. He is an assistant secretary general and operations head for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and he spoke with our colleague Leila Favel. The scale is enormous. Um, a few weeks ago, when colleagues were planning for a possible number of people who would cross into the country, they were thinking that over a period of six months, they could have up to 100,000 people crossing. But what we're seeing now, just one month, a few days into the crisis, is close to 100,000 people who've already crossed. Um, very, very difficult people who are uh, along the border, 90% um, women and children. Uh, arriving and in very, very difficult conditions. When you say difficult conditions, can you describe those, some examples, uh, what people are dealing with? They cross and they arrive with, with virtually nothing for, for many of them. 
and then they find themselves on the border, um, we basically give them a bit of plastic sheeting for them to, to shelter themselves. And then basically that's, that's that. And of course, we're also trying to provide the food assistance and, and other items, but that's very temporary. And then from there, what we need to do is to transport them away from the border into either existing settlement, if there is still space, in these settlements or, or into newly established ones. Now, Chad is already home to hundreds of thousands of refugees. I think the estimate's around 600,000. Can Chad and does the UNHCR have what it needs to deal with this sudden new influx? No, it is indeed very difficult. Chad uh, has been receiving, and already just before this crisis was receiving 600,000 refugees from all over the region. They were receiving 400,000 uh, Sudanese refugees from a previous conflict and adding another 100,000 refugees in a very poor part of the country is going to be extremely difficult. But what has to be underlined is what we saw is the extraordinary solidarity and generosity of people who are very little and yet are prepared to welcome people who are fleeing uh, danger and, and provide them with, with the little that, uh, that they can. So that solidarity is, is essential. Now, what we're hoping is that the situation will be such that people will be able to return. But unfortunately, we don't see such signs for the time being. What are the most urgent needs right now? Our most urgent need is definitely shelter. The logistics that are required to bring assistance to people where they are and then bring them out from the borders to the camp. Uh, Health care is absolutely essential, being able to provide them also with clean water and, of course, food assistance, which is in this kind of circumstances absolutely essential. All of that costs money. What amount is needed from the international community to respond to this crisis? So last week, we launched an appeal uh, for uh, refugees arriving into neighboring countries for about $472 million. But again, that was for six months and for a total of uh, a million people. And we know that we're unfortunately likely to reach this number before we reach uh, six months. So this support is very much needed. And we count very much on the international community to provide the support that is required. Beyond Chad, the larger, I mean, Sudanese are fleeing to any neighboring country if they can get out. Um, How many people total are refugees now from this crisis? We've passed the 260,000 people who've fled into neighboring countries. The country which has received the largest number of refugees is um, Egypt. But we should also Keep in mind that Sudan, before the crisis, had over a million refugees, many of them South Sudanese, and many of these South Sudanese are now going back to their places of origin. You said that ideally what you want to see is for the conflict to end so that people can return home. Um, Do you have any hope as we see these ceasefires called and falter and called and falter and the fighting continue? We must maintain hope this because this is what we have, but we have to also call on the parties to the conflict to remind them of their responsibility vis-a-vis civilians, and that's what uh, the whole international community is doing. The UN Refugee Agency's Assistant Secretary General, Raouf Mazou, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Tomorrow marks one year since 19 fourth graders and two teachers were slaughtered inside an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips has been following the plans to build a new school. And here's where we want to warn you that the story contains a graphic description of violence against the children. On May 24, 2022, Uvalde Justice of the Peace Lalo Diaz had the horrific task 
of identifying the bodies of the children and the teachers that died inside Robb Elementary. To me, the floors are all blood. You know, I see red floors. Diaz is now co-chair of a committee to help architects find a location and design for a new school. He says Uvalde families need to have a fresh start in a new location. We wanted it to be fun and exciting and make it a good environment. And then, uh, of course, making it safe. Most students of the old school are now in a makeshift space, an old elementary school that had been converted into administrative offices. But late this summer, the school district will break ground on a new building to replace Robb Elementary. Diaz says it was important to him to join the committee to make sure the Hispanic community, especially the west side of Uvalde near Robb, was represented. This is the first school that we're going to build that actually matches the demographics of, of our community and that is built around it. At a presentation to the school board in April, architect Jeff Rodriguez said elements representing Uvalde were incorporated into the design, like the colors of papel picado, a type of decoration used in Mexican celebrations, and symbols from nature. Beautiful sunsets, the honeybees, the monarch butterfly migratory route that comes right through Uvalde. The new school is designed around an interior courtyard so that students will have a protected outdoor space. And it will only have three exterior doors. Diaz described a special feature to the school board that's at the center of the school, stretching two floors and visible from the library and the courtyard, will be a steel tree to honor the memory of the 21 victims. It's going to have two large limbs representing the two teachers and 19 smaller limbs representing the children. Diaz says the tree symbolizes the strength of Uvalde. The old Rob Elementary is set to be demolished, but for now it still stands, silent as 21 white crosses keep watch. Diaz says it will be just as important to carefully plan what to do with the old location as it is for the new. For NPR News, I'm Camille Phillips in San Antonio. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, it's Bay State Bike Month, and our transportation reporter joined those going for a ride. And remembering Boston Marathon icon Rick Hoyt, who's died at age 61. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Florida law now bans public colleges from offering general ed classes that, quote, distort significant events or teach identity politics. It was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's getting out of that game. Um, if you want to do things like gender ideology, go to Berkeley. Is it constitutional for a government to tell colleges what they can and can't teach? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny and breezy today in the 60s near the coast, 70s inland. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, 
Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The month of May is known for flowers, Mother's Day, and college graduations. It's also a time when bike riders in Massachusetts get to celebrate their favorite mode of transportation. Bay State Bike Month is in full swing, and WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez went for a ride. After months of driving to work, I give my car a break and unlock a blue bike. My guide for this ride is Stacy Thompson, the executive director of the nonprofit Livable Streets. She can tell right away that I'm a newbie. <laughs> Wait, is this your first bike ride in Boston? Yeah. Okay, we'll keep you safe. We start at the Forest Hills MBTA station, which is sandwiched between a major intersection and the green oasis of the Arnold Arboretum. We snake our way through multiple bike paths toward Brookline. Bunches of cyclists zoom past us. <laughs> Thompson says that's pretty normal for a weekday. Dozens of cyclists biking together, younger folks, older folks, people in spandex, people dressed for work, the whole gambit of folks getting around this morning. The bike paths are a joy to ride on, but sharing the road with cars is intense. My other guide for this trip is former Massachusetts Assistant Secretary of Transportation, Chris Dempsey. He says he'd like to see more investment in bike infrastructure to make cyclists feel safer on Boston roads. What we want in Greater Boston is to create a culture and a community where whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, you feel comfortable getting on a bike and getting to a place where you want to be. I get to where I want to be, and I'm happy to be back on my own two feet. The ride leaves me a little out of breath, but in good spirits. Congratulations on your first bike riding in Boston. We hope it's the first of many rides. The city of Boston hosts free bicycle workshops through September as part of a campaign to encourage more people to cycle to work. They're hoping to reach 8% of commuters by 2030. I may stick to dedicated bike lanes if I give it another go. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The man known for competing in the Boston Marathon from his wheelchair while his father pushed has died. Rick Hoyt's family says he passed away yesterday from respiratory complications. To remember him, we're revisiting an interview Sasha Pfeiffer did with the father-son duo nearly a decade ago. I met the Hoyts at Dick's home in the small central Massachusetts town of Holland, a few miles from Rick's apartment in neighboring Sturbridge. The house is a shrine to Team Hoyt, Walls lined with medals and plaques they've won in their nearly 1,100 races, and photos of them with luminaries they've met over the years. See, this is Ronald Reagan, and this is Johnny Kelly, the great oh, Johnny Kelly yeah. that ran the Boston Marathon, and that's Chara from the Boston Bruins. Oh, yeah. yeah, and we're very good friends with him. They didn't imagine becoming such VIPs back when they first raced together when Rick was 15 years old. Rick has cerebral palsy, the aftermath of oxygen being cut off to his brain when he was born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. Rick's mind is intact, but he can't speak or control his limbs. He did attend school, though, and one day he used his computerized voice to tell his dad about a charity road race. 
It was for a student lacrosse player who'd been badly injured in an accident. When Rick came home, he told me all about it. And he said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. At the time, Dick Hoyt was far from in top physical condition. His responsibilities as a husband and father of three boys didn't leave much time for exercise. He didn't want to say no to his son, though. Everybody thought that we would just go to the corner and turn around and come back. Well, we didn't. We finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. <laughs> <laughs> and when we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. For Rick, being on a race course, even though it was his father's legs doing the running, gave him the sense he was as able-bodied as all the other competitors. He called himself Freebird because now he was free and able to be out there competing and running with everybody else. The Hoyts knew they had to keep running. So they had a special racing wheelchair made for Rick, a streamlined three-wheeler that wouldn't keep veering off course. Then they began doing longer races and eventually set their sights on the Boston Marathon. Race organizers turned them down at first, but finally relented although the Hoyts got no special treatment. They made us qualify in Rick's age group. And that was kind of tough, you know, because Rick was in his 20s, I was in my 40s, and they were using Rick's age for us to qualify. But they qualified and ran Boston, and that was the beginning of a legendary father-son partnership. The Boston Marathon became an annual event for them. And the more Dick and Rick raced publicly, the more they wanted the world to know that a physical disability doesn't have to be insurmountable. The Boston Marathon is the one event that I look forward to all year long. This is Rick's computerized voice, the one that lets him express all the ideas and feelings teeming in his head that his mouth can't produce. The people along the way are the best. When I hear them yell our names out, it gives me a great feeling inside. Rick had arrived midway through my conversation with his dad, quietly rolling through a back door with the help of one of his personal care attendants. It's laborious for him to create new computerized speech, so instead he played for me a recording he'd made. Many people have asked me what I would do if I weren't disabled. I have thought long and hard about what I would do if I weren't in a wheelchair. Maybe I would play hockey, basketball, or baseball, but then I thought about it some more, and realized that what I would probably do first is tell my dad to sit down in the wheelchair, and now I would push him. That was a report by Sasha Pfeiffer from 2014, the last year the Hoyts competed in the Boston Marathon. Dick Hoyt died in 2021. His son, Rick Hoyt, died yesterday. He was 61 years old. Coming up on Morning Edition in about five minutes, the White House and seven western states have reached a preliminary agreement for sharing the Colorado River's water. The deal has implications for 40 million people who rely on the river for water and power. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. And Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon, partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. With a June deadline approaching, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say they're optimistic an agreement to raise the debt ceiling will be reached soon. The two met again yesterday at the White House. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. The White House has proposed keeping spending flat this year and next, uh, and Biden wants to look at tax revenue as a way to reduce debt. But McCarthy ruled that out flat out. The problem is not revenue. The problem is spending. So if you want to know where our differences have been, it's always been the same place. And he's continuing to say that the government needs to spend less than it did last year. He's calling for a lot of different spending cuts. And he also wants more work requirements to limit federal aid to programs like Medicaid. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the federal government could default on its debts as early as June 1st without a hike in the debt limit. Republican Carrie Lake has lost her final legal challenge to the results of the Arizona governor's race. Democrat Katie Hobbs defeated Lake in the election last November. Yesterday, a judge dismissed Lake's allegation that elections officials in Maricopa County did not verify signatures on mail-in ballots as required by law. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Three former students at Arlington Catholic High School are accusing a former administrator of sexual abuse. As WBUR Simone Rios reports, the group is suing church leaders who they claim bear responsibility. The civil suit says Cardinal Sean O'Malley and two top church lieutenants should have known the former principal posed a threat to children. Attorney Mitchell Garabedian says church leaders need to be held accountable for failing to act. Where were they? Why weren't these bishops doing their job? 2011 to 2016, five years, for five years, children were sexually abused according to this complaint. The Archdiocese says Principal Stephen Baggioni was fired after the allegations surfaced and law enforcement was notified. A church spokesman told WBUR that both school and church officials have cooperated with law enforcement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. State regulators are changing the way they plan to roll out cannabis cafes. Those are places where people will be able to buy and consume recreational marijuana. The original regulations would have limited those cafes to a pilot program in just 12 cities and towns statewide. Now regulators say they'll craft new rules they hope will allow more sites to open sooner. The city of Somerville's first engagement center to help unhoused people is now fully up and running. The center in Davis Square is open during the day. That's when many other shelters close. It provides visitors with bathrooms, laptops, lockers, and snacks. Somerville Homeless Coalition Executive Director Mike Libby says the center also has staff on site to help people find housing and jobs. We wanted to create a place not only where people could escape the elements, but we also wanted to create a welcoming atmosphere where people felt like they belonged. Not just that, but offer them the services that they need to accomplish some of the goals that they have for themselves. The center is being funded with federal pandemic relief money. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. 
See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. The Celtics are hoping to start a history-making run tonight in Miami. It's Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Seas trail the Heat three games to none in their playoff series. No NBA team has ever come back to win a series from that deficit. The Red Sox lost to the Angels 2-1 last night in Southern California. The teams will meet again tonight. Clear skies and highs in the 60s near the coast today. It'll be warmer as you go inland in the low 70s. Tonight, skies stay clear and it falls to lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, highs reach the low 70s and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 56 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. California, Arizona, and Nevada are proposing new cutbacks to their use of the drought-stricken Colorado River to keep it from running dry. The river is vital for tens of millions of people across the Southwest, and some of America's most productive farms rely on it, too. Drought and population growth and climate change have all contributed to the water crisis. Now, in a proposal released on Monday, states that use the Colorado for essentials like drinking water and generating electricity at dams agreed to reduce their take of the river in exchange for more than $1 billion in federal payments. Reporter Luke Runyan from member station KUNC in Colorado is with us now to explain the latest. Luke, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I understand that this new deal is a temporary fix. It's only through 2026, but I still want to know what's in it and who takes these water cuts. The bulk of the cutbacks would come from Arizona and California, uh, and those states' leaders have said that they're ready to start relying on the river less, but want federal funds to ease some of the economic burden that comes with using less water. They're prepared to conserve 3 million acre feet over the next three and a half years. And just to put that in perspective, one acre foot generally supplies about two households in the Southwest for a year. Farmers will use less. Tribes have said they'll conserve as well, even the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, And some of the cutbacks will be incentivized. Uh, States will split $1.2 billion in federal funds, but it's unclear now exactly how that money will be split up. So these new cuts come after federal officials last year threatened to intervene and force deeper water cutbacks if the states could not come to an agreement. What's been the reaction from officials in those states? Right. Last summer, the situation on the Colorado River was much more dire. Its biggest reservoirs were threatening to dip low enough that they would lose the ability to generate hydroelectric power. Then came this very wet winter that we just went through here in the Rocky Mountains, and that eased up the pressure that everyone was feeling. What the states are agreeing to now is significantly less than what federal officials said was needed last year. What state leaders are saying right now is that these are the cuts that they can live with for the next few years while we negotiate a much more robust agreement to go into place after 2026. Here's uh, Brenda Berman. She runs the Central Arizona Project. That's a canal system that delivers water to the Phoenix and Tucson areas. I would say this is a short-term deal. Right. If this is a short term deal to 
build stability and to prepare us for 2026. We know we are going to have to learn to live with a smaller river. Because these reductions aren't the top-down mandatory cuts that people were really worried about, they're a bit more palatable to farmers and city leaders. And because they come with a lot of federal money attached, uh, that makes the news go down a little bit easier, too. What I'm hearing from people is that this is one more step in the right direction, but that the region still has a long way to go before it balances its water demands to match the shrinking river. So, so look, is this the kind of thing that tells us what is coming? Like, is it indicative of the kinds of future arguments among the states that we can expect as natural resources become scarce in this era of climate change? I do think its story fits into a broader discussion about what it's going to take to adapt to climate change. It's likely going to be very expensive and potentially very painful to learn to live with less water in the Southwest, same as it will be to learn to live with rising seas, more destructive natural disasters. But this gives us a glimpse at what the coming challenges are going to look like in real time. That's Luke Runyon of member station KUNC. He's the host of the podcast Thirst Gap about the Colorado River Basin. Luke, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. The family of Christian Glass will receive a payment from police. Authorities in Colorado killed Glass at the age of 22. He called 911 for help and a sheriff's deputy who responded shot him as he sat inside the car. Now the state and several law enforcement agencies have settled the case by agreeing to pay $19 million. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry has been following the case. Good morning. Good morning. I guess we should note, I mean, there are a lot of different sizes of settlements for wrongful deaths like this. $19 million is pretty high. Why so high? Well, in, in these situations, they do consider um, a person's potential lifetime of earnings. But, you know, I think really the more important point is that this reflects a pretty big acknowledgement that the law enforcement officers on the scene that night did pretty much everything wrong. And that if municipalities didn't pay out now, a jury could have awarded the family something much bigger. Oh, so $19 million may have been a bargain. Um, we should note that there are so many high-profile police shootings that involve race in some way or another. In this case, we'll just note that everybody involved appeared to be white. Um, what, according to the plaintiffs, did the police do wrong? Well, you know, um, I'm sure you know, Steve, officers are supposed to de-escalate scenes when they get there, um, and these officers escalated everything from the moment they arrived. Glass never threatened them. He never showed he was a danger to anyone. They screamed at him. They used force. They ended up breaking all the car windows when he was safely inside his own vehicle. At one point, a deputy stood on the hood of his car and pointed a gun at him through the windshield. Do you understand any better how it got to that point, how Glass ended up calling for help on that road? Yeah, you know, it was around midnight. Glass was driving in the mountains near Denver. He apparently got his car stuck on some rocks. Um, this is according to 911 dispatch tape. He called them. He called for some help. He said he had some geology gear in the car from a trip he had recently taken to Utah, two knives and a rubber mallet. He also sounded a little paranoid on that call and, and very, very scared. Mm -hmm. When the deputies got there, he offered to throw the gear out the window of the car, but they declined. No, do not throw them out. Do not touch them. Do not reach for them. I want you out of the vehicle now. I understand that. Step out. Glass told him he was really afraid of getting out of the car. He asked them to tow him or push him out, and he'd follow them to a police station. The scene was super chaotic. It escalated very quickly. Eventually, they ended up breaking the windows, shooting him with beanbag projectiles, 
tasing him and then ultimately killing him. And, you know, just as a reminder, he was never suspected of committing any crime during all of this. Um, other than paying $19 million, will these law enforcement agencies have to do anything? Yes, and I think this is really important to the family, the non-monetary agreements that they came up with um, in this agreement. Um, Clear Creek County, which is the small mountain community that this took place, will dedicate a crisis response team in their small law enforcement agency. The state will also launch a virtual reality police training with Christian stories so officers can practice how to respond to someone who may be in crisis. Hmm. And his parents are going to speak to new police recruits about what happened. And I guess we should note for the record also a couple of people involved in this, including the man who shot Glass, have been charged in the case and their trial is coming up. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Allison Sherry is with Colorado Public Radio. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 845, what you want to know about Max, a new streaming service that launches today. It combines HBO Max with Discovery+. Plus. We'll have a high in the 60s and 70s today, depending on how close you are to the coast. It'll also be breezy and sunny. Tonight, upper 40s, then low 70s tomorrow and sunny again. It's 57 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bess, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Food and Drug Administration is giving a Marlboro company clearance for a combined flu, RSV, and COVID test. Whole Logic received the approval yesterday. The company's leaders say the test will help save time for both patients and physicians. A bioscience startup in Watertown is going public today thanks to more than $35 million in new financing. Larkspur Bioscience focuses on making drugs to treat certain types of cancer. The company is led by a former Novartis executive who sold her last startup for nearly $250 million. The owners of the Barking Crab restaurant and bar on the water in Fort Point, Boston, want to add a floating barge. Banker and Tradesman reports the Barking Crab previously looked into adding a rooftop deck to its existing building. That plan was rejected over accessibility concerns. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual info session May 25th, online at buacademy.org backslash events. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. Streaming TV fans have a new option for their attention starting today. Warner Brothers Discovery debuts Max, a service which combines the programs from HBO Max and Discovery Plus into one ginormous platform with some original content thrown in. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is watching. Hi there, Eric. Hey. Okay, so millions of people already have one of these services that are getting bundled together. What exactly would be included? So this streaming service is what industry observers expected when Warner Brothers Discovery was created over a year ago. Now, you might remember that HBO's owner, Warner Media, merged with Discovery Inc., and it was expected back then that this new company was going to create this larger streaming service just to put all their material in one place. So Max brings together HBO Max stuff, which is HBO Originals, the DC Universe, Warner Brothers Films, CNN, with Discovery Plus material from platforms like TLC, HGTV, and the Discovery Channel. And the company also promises an average of more than 40 new programs programs or season of shows every month. So that includes a new Harry Potter series and a spinoff of the Big Bang Theory. And even though there's a writer's strike, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav says it's not going to impact this launch that much, at least now, because they have a lot of content that they've already produced in advance. Okay, so they're making this consolidation at a time where streaming services have grown enormously, but have now been uh, under a little bit of stress. How does the cost of this compare with what people were getting before? Well, um, if you have HBO Max, for example, the pricing may seem the same, but there's some important differences for media nerds. So if you already subscribe to HBO Max, today you're either automatically updated to Max or you'll be asked to download an updated app. Discovery Plus subscribers can stay on that service or they can move over to Max. Uh, and there's going to be three tiers of service. So you can have a super cheap version with ads at about $10 a month. Uh, you can have a version without ads for about $16 a month, which is about what you pay for the top level of HBO Max right now. And they've created a top level subscription called Ultimate Ad Free that has higher resolution and sound for about $20 a month. And of course, uh, there's a yearly fee, an annual fee that would be a little bit cheaper. Is this heading in the direction of the old cable TV model where you essentially pay one price and you get a whole bunch of channels? Uh, it does feel a little like that. They're positioning Max as a more family-friendly, broad-based service than HBO Max. And I think that's one reason why they dropped HBO's name, which is often associated with more adult-oriented content. Sure. And these changes position them so they can better compete against the bigger streaming companies like Netflix and Disney+. Plus. But what effect do you think this is going to have on the broader media landscape? Well, you know, I wonder about HBO's brand, for example, which has stood at the forefront of cutting-edge TV for decades, from Oz and The Sopranos to Game of Thrones and Succession. Yeah. And now HBO just becomes a big cog in an even bigger media platform. I mean, it still exists as a cable channel, but its name isn't leading the big streaming brand anymore. And I wonder what that's going to mean for their programming. I'm not sure there's that many media consumers who are equally interested in Succession and TLC's Dr. Pimple Popper. And I think <laughs> to see Max kind of dilute its programming to appeal to some imagined version of middle America. And, you know, one of the promises of streaming is that you pay for exactly what you want to see. And a service like Max is bringing us closer to this cable TV kind of system where you're paying for what you like, but you're also paying for things you don't like or you don't care about. And that seems kind of like a step backward. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Eric, thanks. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
Coming up in the next few minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, it takes lithium to build electric vehicles, and the growing push for EVs means more car makers are trying to secure deals with lithium mines. The Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the new race for lithium. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Many people with long COVID have had to take a leave from their jobs. Now they rely on long-term disability checks to survive, and getting approved has become increasingly difficult. It's very frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for patients, for doctors. And insurance companies will say, we're not paying until we figure this out. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy say they're optimistic a debt ceiling deal can be reached with more talks planned for tonight. Social media company TikTok is suing Montana over its new law banning the app. The FDA has approved a new treatment to reverse fentanyl and other opioid overdoses. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. We'll have temperatures in the 60s closer to the coast today, low 70s farther inland. It'll also be sunny. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston at 851. TikTok strikes back. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer in for David Brancaccio. TikTok is suing to block a new Montana law that would bar downloads of the video-sharing app starting next year. In approving the measure, state lawmakers cited national security and user privacy concerns, the same concerns echoed by U.S. intelligence agencies. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Good morning, Nova. Good morning. So break down the Montana law for us and why TikTok is suing. Yeah, all right. Uh, Montana passed the most extensive TikTok ban in the country. We've seen a lot of states ban TikTok on official government devices, but this was a first. Uh, It affects all mobile devices within the state's boundaries. And TikTok's lawsuit is on constitutional grounds. The company makes several arguments, such as that Montana is violating the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, that only the federal government can regulate interstate business, and that the ban violates First Amendment free speech protections as well. And how likely is it, Nova, that TikTok can actually win this case? Well, you know, I reached out to several legal scholars on that question, and they were unanimous in saying that TikTok has a very strong case. One expert pointed all the way back to the 1990s in a case that challenged elements of the Communications Decency Act. The Supreme Court struck down parts of that law, which were intended to protect minors from online indecent materials such as pornography. And more recently, 
the Trump administration tried to ban TikTok and federal courts ruled against that effort as well. So legal experts told me that it would be very difficult for Montana to prevail. Marketplace's Nova Safo, thank you. You're welcome. Ford has secured multiple deals to buy lithium products from mines in the U.S., Canada, and Chile as it continues its electric vehicle push. The deals are an indicator of just how competitive the lithium mining landscape has become. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval reports. The race is on for the soft, silvery metal that comes from Australian rocks and salty Chilean brine. Alyssa Kendall is with UC Davis. Electric vehicles use lithium-ion batteries, and they're much larger than the ones that we've been using in our cell phones. All that additional lithium has to come from somewhere, which has automakers worried, says Morgan Bazillion with the Colorado School of Mines. They're getting scared about not having enough of this stuff to, to feed the market in the, in the medium term. Demand for lithium will grow roughly 20 percent each year for the next decade, says analyst Chris Berry with House Mountain Partners, making lithium companies the bell of the ball. The mining companies have all the leverage. So much so that auto manufacturers are getting aggressive in terms of locking in supply. What companies like Ford are having to do is basically enter into offtake agreements today for supply that they're not even going to receive before 2025 or 2026. He says some automakers are even funding expansion or new lithium ventures. And a brand new lithium mine can take as long as 15 years to build. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up about three-tenths percent. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down, with the Dow future down more than 50 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 3.7 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity helps investors understand who has the best relationship with their next investment. Affinity knows. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com slash business. Congressional leaders in the White House are still negotiating over raising or suspending the debt limit to keep the federal government from defaulting. One point of discussion, food stamps. Some congressional Republicans want older Americans to prove they work or are looking for work, at least part-time, to get those benefits. As Ali Budner reports, this debate over work requirements has a history. Work requirements for federal food assistance aren't new. They were largely suspended during the COVID-19 pandemic and are phasing back in now. But generally, since the mid-90s, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, has had rules. Able-bodied adults under 50 have to work at least 20 hours a week if they don't have dependents. That would change under the GOP plan. This basically just pushes the upper age limit to 56. Matt Weidinger is a senior fellow at the think tank American Enterprise Institute. He backs this idea, in part on principle. There's not large budget savings attached to this. It boils more down to the question of, should individuals be expected to do something in exchange for benefits? But he says the budget savings would be helpful too. Plus, he says more older Americans working could help the labor shortage. 
Donna Ginther is an economics professor at the University of Kansas, and she gets why federal spending cuts are on the table. The social safety net is a huge part of the cost of the federal government. And it's very difficult to tame budget deficits without touching the social safety net. But, Ginther says, SNAP benefits were already reduced when the pandemic emergency was lifted. And grocery bills are climbing these days. We've had huge food inflation. So we're teetering on having more people go hungry by putting these restrictions in place. Some states already have work requirements for adults in their 50s, including Ginther's state of Kansas. Nearly 10% of people there are food insecure. And if we, we do go into a recession, then these policies are going to have a real bite. She says changes to SNAP would be felt most by children and people with disabilities. But they could have broader consequences, too, even for people who are already working but have unpredictable schedules. Elizabeth Lauerbash is with the Center for Law and Social Policy. Because they might have hours that fluctuate that they can't control when they're going to be scheduled. And she says one effect would be more pressure on food banks as people look for alternatives to feed their families. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. Our producers are James Graham, Ali Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby. I'm Nancy Marshall Genzer with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. WBUR supporters include Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.